Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Wang Gongwu, our 12th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Prof Wang will be delivering his first lecture titled Cultures and Civilizations. Following his lecture, Prof Wang will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Kwok Kian Woon, Vice Chancellor at University of the Arts, Singapore. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. Thank you for joining us at the auditorium today. Please rem be reminded to switch your mobile phones to silent mode. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at the auditorium today, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a link in the feed at the end of the lecture and also a QR code which you can click on or scan to submit your feedback. Our director of IPS, Janadas Devon, will now deliver his opening remarks. Director, please. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our 12th SR Northern Fellow, Professor Wang Gangwu, a renowned historian and a scholar of rare distinction. I said this before, so I'll say it again. Um, we have a habit in Singapore of debasing language. We call scholars teenagers who managed to do so well in their A-levels that we award, we award, them, award them prestigious scholarships. Professor Wong is a different kind of scholar. Um, his is a lifetime devoted to study, an ascesis of mind and spirit, a perfection of art as much as a perfection of life. Many years ago, I chaired a talk that Professor Wong delivered. I could see he was sitting next to me. I could see he had a sheet of paper, and he had scribbled just a few lines on the sheet of paper, and then he held forth for 30 minutes, and at the end of it, I was filled with awe and envy because you could take down what he had said and they would all have made perfect paragraphs. And there are very few people I know who can do that. That is a scholar. There is no more distinguished scholar in the humanities at any rate than Professor Wang on this island. His lecture series today, um, over the next few months actually, is titled Living with Civilizations, Reflections on Southeast Asia's Local and National Cultures. In his first lecture today, titled Cultures and Civilizations, he will speak on the history of Southeast Asia's cultures and how they've been influenced by neighboring ancient civilizations, among other things. This will be followed by a second lecture on the 1st of December, opening to the global maritime, when he will discuss the effects of the rise of global maritime trade on the Southeast Asian region. His third lecture will examine, among other things, the role of Singapore as a port in the British Empire, as well as the ancient civilizations, various ancient civilizations, losing control of their own terrains. He will deliver his fourth lecture in March next year, when he will address how our region has lived with various civilizations after World War II. 
I would like to thank my old friend, Professor Kokwen Ken Woon, the newly appointed Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Arts Singapore for moderating today's Q&A. The SR Nathan Fellowship for the Study of Singapore was established in 2014, as you all know, um, as a tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, Mr. SR Nathan. The fellowship aims to promote greater discourse on Singapore's public policy and current affairs. I would like to thank individuals as well as corporations, including those who give to IPS annually uh, for their support and generosity in funding this scholarship and supporting IPS. Ladies and gentlemen, our 12th SR Nathan Fellow, the incomparable Professor Wang Gangwu. Thank you so much, Director. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to invite Professor Wang to begin his first lecture titled Cultures and Civilizations. Professor Wang, please. As you can see, the IPS is a very considerate and thoughtful organization. They've enabled me to sit down because I'm old. Thank you very much, Tanadas. Well, friends and colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, the SR Northern Fellowship has given me the chance to pursue my thoughts about Singapore as a new nation and share them with you. Those who gave the lectures before me included friends who have a deep and intimate knowledge of public policy and governance. I do not have that knowledge and can only claim to be the oldest person to have given, been given the privilege. Thank you. I did share a, a worm's eye view of Singapore as a colony when Mr. Nathan and I were students staying at the Dunnan Road hostels. Also, we briefly served uh, at the time at, when he was still self-governing. I studied Singapore's place as the 12th state of the new Federation of Malaysia. Also, during the brief period when he was in this Federation, I served on a committee to examine the city-state's contribution to the country's higher education. After the separation, my connection with Singapore were desultory until I came to work here in 1996. They were a, a mixed set of experiences with everything about the Republic seen from outside and from afar. What was constantly in the news was the fact that this small state was in the middle of a newly defined region between two oceans. And most of the people were descended from immigrants from other countries who chose to settle here. Its leaders were nevertheless determined to create a national identity by incorporating parts of the several distinct cultures represented by its peoples. The global city was determined to overcome its reputation as a cultural desert. It was committed to being part of modern 
civilization, while large portions of the population hope to retain the cultural heritage of their ancestors. And many were conscious that their heritage came from ancient civilizations and that the three most prominent, the Indic, the Sinic, and the Islamic, are living civilizations, living civilizations, seeking to modernize. Uh, together with their neighbors, Singapore was also reshaping a national culture within borders that had only recently been drawn up for them. Uh, this was something I found fascinating. And I was curious what this really meant for the country. For decades, I had romanticized about Singapore in Malaya as a colorful tapestry of local living uh, and also a thick carpet that is woven with different strands of world history. And there were moments when I had to stop painting these uh, pretty pictures of multicultural promise. Uh, for example, following the May 13 riots in Kuala Lumpur, when the situation looked pretty precarious. I had a personal perspective on racial and religious tensions, having been, brought, having been through the Maria Hertog killings here in Singapore. Also, I had briefly served on the committee set up to investigate the 1964 race riots in Singapore itself. Now, how can a new nation be built with such explosive ingredients. As a student of history, I was doing research on Chinese history, but I also had an interest in the overseas Chinese. These were the Hua Chao in the Nanyang, that was the name, an earlier name, which was more or less the same as the region called Southeast Asia. At the heart of that problem, beyond race and religion, were political issues of Chinese, Chinese nationalism, and local nationalism, intertwined with imperial capitalism, as well as anti-colonial socialism. I was losing my political innocence at the time, and while I was studying more history and encountering both ancient and modern, modern civilizations. Before long, I, I saw the connection between local cultures and external influences that came to shape and empower them. What was more, these influences often had deep roots, depending on when the people first came to the region and how dynamic and powerful the neighboring civilizations were. The records and artifacts that both the mainland and, and maritime peoples of our region did not, they did not show, the artifacts show that they did not produce their own civilizations. Instead, they chose what they wanted from those they were in contact with. All of them ancient civilizations that have survived to the present. There were the Indic civilization from the Indian subcontinent, there was also the Sinic civilization in China coming from overland as well as from the South China Sea. 
And further west, there was the Mediterranean civilization from across the Indian Ocean. That Mediterranean was later identified with a monotheistic faith that produced a profound division in that civilization. The Arabic-based Islamic merchants reached out to our region early, while the European crusaders and trading companies arrived only after the 16th century. All that changed after the 18th century, when the Age of Enlightenment in Europe led the world to the idea of modern civilization. A new Singapore emerged out of the imperialist rivalries that mapped the region at the end of World War II when the British call when the uh, <clears throat> a new Singapore emerged out of the imperialist rivalries that mapped a region at the end of the World War at the end of World War II that the British called Southeast Asia. That region became one in which new nations were built and locally local cultures were being shaped into national cultures. During the past 70 years, many efforts have been made to trace the origins of the region, that, a region that did not have a name. The search for origins has been an intriguing adventure, and we know a great deal more about our region today, but we're still trying to find meaning in the way our images of the past relate to present realities. Having lived through much of this period of discovery, I offer my thoughts on why I believe that that past has something to offer our future. Let me begin by stressing the difference between cultures and civilizations. You'll be familiar with the literature on how various cultures during this past century have been adapting to the task of modern nation building. Uh, to do that, we see each nation dedicated to creating a national culture that could help frame a national identity. They were doing that not only for their own security and self-respect, they also want to be recognized as civilized in a modern world. Civilizations, however, uh, civilizations, however ancient they might be, did not doubt that they were civilized. What concerned them was not to disappear, along with those that are merely are now merely exhibited in modern museums. In the following lectures, I shall talk primarily about the civilizations that shaped the history of this Southeast Asian region in which Singapore is located and of which it is the center. My focus will be on the many cultures that were developed within the region and how the region had always been open to neighboring civilizations. Now, this will include talking about those cultures that have kept themselves separate and have learned to select the ideas and institutions they needed to enable their cultures to shape their own distinctive identity. 
And Singapore is no, no exception. It's just that we started later, later than the others. And given its commitment to staying up front with modernity is so, so very strong, its national identity is less clearly defined. It is interesting how all the new nations use their historical experiences to help them build new national cultures and how they expect to coexist with modern as well as modernizing civilizations. In this context, the region's nation states have been engrossed with cultural adaptations together with problems of nation building, also with regional harmony, and now also with superpower rivalry. To understand how they dealt with the problems that they had faced and how they tried to keep up with the world of rapid changes, I think we need to examine the cultures that were developed here and the kinds of civilizations that they interacted with throughout the region's history. To try and do this, I believe it is necessary to, be, to distinguish clearly between the words cultures, culture, and civilization. Uh, but let me be clear, these lectures are not about the history of Singapore or about Southeast Asia. They are about how cultures of our region had lived with civilizations that shaped and enriched their local identities. And they also look at how different civilizations interacted here in borderless ways. I use a historical frame to emphasize the processes of change and compare the different results the interactions have produced at different stages. What do I mean by civilization? How should it be distinguished from culture? Both are modern terms that came from Western Europe. The concepts have been translated into various local languages and are now commonly used. But the two are not always distinguished. And when used in translation, they are often used interchangeably. I found it difficult to find satisfactory de definitions of both words. So I shall describe what I think they mean. Culture is what every group of people have shared because they developed it together and is something that they identify as their very own. The groups could be large or small. They range from simple ones like isolated tribe to a sophisticated community that could establish strong states. The cultures could be agrarian or pastoral, settled or nomadic, literate or non-literate. They were likely to be ruled by chiefs, priests, princes, kings, even emperors or elected leaders. Because their people of all classes have lived together for long periods of time, their cultures, whether defined as ethnic or national or whatever, were likely to be resilient and distinct. Civilization, on the other hand, stemmed from efforts by visionaries, prophets, and teachers. 
to explain the universe and to find the meaning of life on earth. From a set of first principles, ideational and moral systems were constructed to uplift the life of everyone beyond local cultures and identities. When such visions inspired the leaders of strong states and empires, those leaders could rise above the, their local cultures and use the idea of a common humanity to define a borderless civilization under their care. Each would then seek to bring local states and cultures under its wing and would act as agents to bring civilization to other peoples. Modern political discourse tells us that many of the early polities in Europe developed new ideas about the nature of their states. These led them to identify sovereign states that could determine national borders for themselves. The most powerful among them grew into national empires, which, backed by a strong Christianizing mission, claimed to be civilizing the unenlightened. Many local European cultures grew to become national cultures, and they went on to represent an imperial civilization that reached out across the globe. By the 19th century, that modern civilization began to impact on all cultures in Asia that they encountered. These included cultures under the umbrella of the ancient Indic or Sinic civilizations that were now relatively weak, if not in decline. After advancing to dominate the world, the credibility of this mission was diminished in the, in the 20th century by two world wars. These were civil wars between rival national regimes that shared the same civilization but had determined to destroy one another. However, the commitment to being modern was not affected. What emerged was a new world order created by the victors of the Second World War. And this was designed to bring an end to national empires and replace them with a system of equal nation states. The ideal was to establish a single set of universally accepted values. But there was no agreement about what was universal. And this led to an ideological division that brought about the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. When that ended, the United States as victor became the world's superpower, ready to spread its modern civilization to all of humankind. It could choose whether to help the remaining ancient civilizations to modernize in order to survive or have them integrated into the only civilization there is. Modern civilization dominated all parts of our region during the 19th century. Before that, however, three ancient civilizations were influential until the 16th century, when the fourth arrived and quickly connected all the world's oceans by maritime power. In my lectures, I shall focus on Southeast Asia, its cultures and their relations 
with these, their relations with these four civilizations. I shall begin by examining how the cultures that thrived were related to the ancient civilizations that impacted on our region. I shall give special attention to the Indic civilization that penetrated the region for more than a millennium. My second lecture will take us to the Mediterranean, where ancient civilizations of the three continents of Asia, Europe, and Africa had met. I shall trace the Greco-Roman civilization's transition to the two parts of an imperial monotheism. And this will take us to how the bifurcated civilizations of the Christians and the Muslims came to interact in our region. My third lecture will focus on the revolutionary changes that made Singapore a key part, a key port in an expanding British Empire, by then the largest of the national empires that extended modern civilization around the world. I will also deal with the ancient civilizations that were losing control over their own terrains. With Chinese merchants and coolies becoming dominant in Singapore, I shall also refer to the Manchu Chinese Empire that grew alongside the European expansion. Uh, this is when Sinic civilization seemed to have peaked and was now struggling to be relevant. In my last lecture, I shall look at how our region lived with civilizations after the end of the Second World War. Modern civilization was already dominant, while three ancient civilizations were trying to modernize. Of the three, China was rejuvenated after two revolutions in pursuit of modernity. And that success has now made it a threat to American interests. In our region, Singapore has had to live with several civilizations when the city-state became independent. It chose an exceptional path by declaring its commitment to what is called a, a plural society nationhood. And how it embraced modernization, uh, modern civilization in a world where ancient civilizations are modernizing has been a challenging experience. And one whose future development deserves special attention. I've now lived in Singapore for nearly 26 years, and I've learned to care for some aspects of its exceptional governance style and social structure. Most of all, I've become fascinated by its people's links with many different worlds. This does not qualify me to talk about the governance of Singapore, I'm happy that uh, the Northern Fellowship Committee has allowed me to go beyond that subject. What has struck me is the way Singapore and the region have been living with different cultures and civilizations. Singapore's experience is not unlike its neighbors in the region, but the differences were significant. Many commentators have looked at this phenomenon, described them, and I've gained much from reading their books, all the books that I've read. It has been a long learning process for me. 
But let me begin with my personal background. I was brought up as someone Chinese who, failing to find home in China, tried to become Malayan, even Malaysian. I then wandered off to be Australian in Canberra, a capital city with a shorter history than Singapore, where almost everyone I met came from somewhere else, and only a tiny minority were actually born there. My work then took me to Hong Kong before I came to work in Singapore again. And everywhere I have been have been multicultural to a greater or lesser extent. So it probably is inevitable that my outlook is filled with cultural concerns, cultural anxieties, you might say. I found it remarkable that peoples of the region had each developed their distinct cultures while interacting with four civilizations. That historical response has continued to the present, even while a powerful modern civilization has been overwhelming the ancient civilizations elsewhere. The peoples recognize that building new national cultures is in their tradition. How they modernize their cultures is through development and change, adaptation, if you like. While Singapore may seek its own path towards creating its national culture, I believe that it found the region's experience, all the experiences of the region, very relevant. I first learned about Singapore as a student at the new University of Malaya, now, now the National University of Singapore, NUS. I returned as a lecturer from 1957 to 59 before transferring to its Kuala Lumpur branch. And this is when we all thought that uh, Singapore would become part of the Federation of Malaya. But when Singapore separated from Malaysia, I had to observe its development from outside. And 37 years later, I came back to NUS through one of its research institutes. I have thus had at least three layers of Singapore experience. The first was as a site for higher learning. The second, as an experiment in social engineering seen from afar. And the third, as a state engaged with modern civilization. Two images from my first day have remained very strong in my mind. One image came from the way the island was connected to the tip of the Malay Peninsula. I had seen that relationship captured by a name in some old maps that I found in the university library. The name was Ujongtana, the endmost land. That picture of a long stretch of land sticking out to the sea into the heart of a huge archipelago has followed me for decades. It led me every now and then to wonder about peninsulas and their role in history. The other image came from my roaming the streets of Singapore. I met many people who had come to the island after wandering around the region and was introduced to a Minangkabau practice that caught my imagination. The word was Marantau, 
a kind of wandering. And what struck me was that Marantau did not refer to traveling to a known destination. The wanderers, after years of seeking experiences and opportunities, expected to return home. In fact, many made a commitment to another land where they started a new life. I found that word rich in meaning and closely linked to the peopling of this port city of Singapore. Those two images have resurfaced and they've led me to look afresh at the many unexpected connections that Singapore has had to several, Singapore has had to several worlds. The connections reminded me how they had helped me understand the plural societies in the region. It made me look again at the many peoples who became accustomed to living with one another. The idea of Ujong Tana made me think about the, get, the genesis of cultures and civilizations. And when I deal with peoples confronting modernization, uh, modern civilizations in this globalized world, I shall come back to the idea of Marantau. As a history student, I had always found the idea of ancient and modern civilizations very intriguing. I recall trying to understand how modern civilization came from Europe to Asia. What was happening led me to think that modern progress was desirable and ancient, pro ancient civilizations were backward, if not dying. The latter was painful to see, but it seemed unavoidable. The Europeans we met when I was young expected to be helpful to all those who wished to modernize and become more like them. And as an admirer of modern civilization, I considered the university as one of its pillars. I felt very lucky to be in a place where I could make myself modern. However, my professors also taught me that if becoming modern enabled an Asian state to challenge the West, as the Japanese did in 1941, the great powers were ready to hit it hard and put that power down. The lesson was that it was all right to learn from them and even try to copy them outright. But to think that the student could take on the master and drive him out of the region was unacceptable. Having studied Japan's ambition to, to dominate China and Southeast Asia, I thought that the outcome for Japan was deserved. The name Ujong Tana linked me to my background in Malaya. You may find that familiar because the island at the foot of the peninsula with people moving back and forth was very similar to my experience. And I grew up in the peninsula side. My neighbors, including friends who went to the same school, were a mix of peoples who came originally from several worlds. Our teachers, too, had come largely from China, India, and the Malay Nusantara world. My parents both came from China and planned to return home as soon as they could. My worlds had thus come to me from very different origins. 
two were linked to my English school in the state of Perak. The school regularly reminded me that we lived in a Malay Muslim sultanate that traced its origins back to historic Malacca, and that Perak once had some kind of tributary relations with the kingdom of Siam. But for reasons unexplained to us, my school was named after one of the governors of the Strait Settlements, a colony ruled by British Christian officials. At the time, I was not aware that no other school in Malaya was named in this way. I realized later that it was an indirect and not too subtle way of telling us who was modern. Both these worlds had little to do with the Chinese majority living in Ipoh town. That community consisted of Nanyang Huachiao from the southern provinces of China. I recall now how their different dialects, mainly Cantonese, Hakka, and Hokkien, made me wonder whether there were more than one China. On the edge of town were Malay kampongs, where people saw themselves as the, the sultan's subjects, while the Indians I met were openly resentful of the fact that their homeland of India was under British rule. Only later did I understand that I was living with people who had different cultures, and some of their cultures were parts of ancient civilizations, like the Indic of India, the Sinic that was developed in China, and the Islamic and the Christian that originated from the Mediterranean region. To my bafflement, the relationship built on these worlds that I enjoyed as a child suddenly changed. In 1941 to 45, Japanese armies took over the town. The new rulers did not trust the Chinese. They claimed to side with the Malays and won over many Indians to join them to drive the British out of India. Under Japanese tutelage, we heard slogans like, Asia for the Asians, and had to bow to the Emperor Showa. We saw that a civilization like Japan with ancient Sinic roots could be modernized to fight back against those who claimed to be superior. But I recall the relief amongst most people in Ipoh when the Japanese were defeated. Nevertheless, there was great uncertainty as to what would happen when the British gave up their empire and returned to their own country. When I came to Singapore in 1949, I discovered that most of the people there had lived in worlds not very different from mine. Hence the delight I, when I saw the maps where Ujong Tana, at the bottom of the Malay Peninsula, I could identify with that. It reminded me of Land's End. Singapore was Malaya's Land's End. Now, I knew that was just whimsy, but there was a serious question there. How did this island at the tip of the Malay Peninsula fit into the region now called Southeast Asia? I had just been made aware 
that Southeast Asia was a, was a name for the region that never had its own identity. Few people realize today that this new University of Malaya was where the first books on Southeast Asia were produced. We were probably the earliest people today, the earliest uh, students anywhere, to be taught that the region was of strategic interest to the Western empires. Before the war ended, British strategists had identified the region around Malaya as essential to their interests in Asia. Looking ahead, they had seen the rise of nationalistic China as something inevitable. And they knew that they would have to deal one day with an independent India with deep anti-British memories. Two of, of our professors were enterprising and produced the first textbook that, te textbooks that introduced re this region to the world. They were the geographer E.H.G. Dobby, who published Southeast Asia, and the historian Brian Harrison, who produced Southeast Asia, A Short History. I recall two of the discussions that followed the publication of their books. The first centered on this large peninsula between India and China that was nameless but unflatteringly known as Indochina. The peninsula also had a long extension, a narrow neck that led to a smaller peninsula, and its tip reached the island of Singapore that was to become the country called Malaya. That was how I was taught. The other discussion touched on the South China Sea. This was seen as a half-closed area, a half-closed sea that was connected from ancient times to the Mediterranean on the one side of the other side of the Indian Ocean. And the people in the West had names for our region, like Savannah Bumi, or the Golden Kosani, Kersonese, and so on. And our region knew about the Mediterranean as the home of several ancient civilizations. As this led some to suggest that the South China Sea could be considered Mediterranean of some kind. Uh, was it not the meeting place of different ancient cultures and civilizations? Given that it had a huge peninsula stretching south to the Malay Peninsula in the middle of archipelagic Nusantara, why did the cultures in this large area not gather their combined power and wealth combine them together and create a civilization or civilizations. I also wondered why the larger peninsula did not have a name that everyone recognized. Today, we refer to it often as mainland, mainland of Southeast Asia, no longer as Indochina. It covers half our region, and it consists of several major river valleys each of them home to an agrarian economy and a separate culture. These divisions remained strong even after other peoples came south from the interior of the Asian continent as migrants and invaders. Some scholars did try to identify an ancient K 
Khmer or Angkorian civilization that was lost and, and rediscovered. However, following decades of research, it was agreed that all the cultures developed on the peninsula were inspired by ancient Indic civilization. The historical, historical artistic, and architectural records show that new ideas and institutions had come from various parts of the Indian subcontinent. What was striking was that the peoples of our region had their local genius, and this enabled, enabled them to choose only what they wanted so that they could enrich and power their own cultures. This brought me to another dimension of ancient local cultures. The current overland borders of northern Southeast Asia are misleading. The tribal peoples further north in China, known as the Hundred Yue, or the Southwestern Yi, by the Chinese neighbors called them that, were very similar to those of the peninsula. They kept no records and were not clearly identified, but from later research, we know them as people who spoke three different families of languages, the Austroasiatic, the Austronesian, Austronesian, and the Tibeto-Burman. I was fascinated by these connections. I even proposed that their original home in China, south of the Yangtze River, be called ancient Southeast Asian, Southeastern Asia. That would make it clear that the various Yue and Yi peoples not only included those who became Chinese, but also those who were drawn south into Southeast Asia. Those closest to being Sinicized were the Viet peoples of the, river, the Red River Valley. Their lands fell to the Qin Han empires, and they came under Chinese rule for a thousand years. And that was long enough for them to accept Confucian legalist institutions and the social and aesthetic values of Sinic civilization. But unlike the Chinese, they were also attracted to India via Mahayana. But sorry, but like the Chinese, they were also attracted to India via Mahayana Buddhism. And their version of Indic values brought those peoples closer together. In that way, the Viet peoples used Sinic civilization to shape their own national culture. In short, well before recorded history, many Austroasiatic speakers came down the river systems of the Red River, Mekong, the Minam Chao Phraya, Sawin, and Irrawaddy. The powerful Mon and Khmer peoples dominated the other four valleys, and they established close relations with Indic civilization. Their elites were deeply inspired by Hindu Buddhist teachers and advisors from India. From the Chinese records, we learn that a kingdom called Funan emerged at the, on the Mekong Delta. Another called Zhenla developed further inland. And later, the Khmer rulers built their remarkable empire and dominated the lower reaches of both the Mekong and Menam rivers for six centuries. 
Like Funan and Zhenla, this empire achieved its cultural heights by embodying localized versions of Indic civilization. There is no doubt that the Indic prophets and teachers were the most dynamic and influential visionaries for centuries. There were two parts to this civilization. There was a Dravidian core, and this was the indigenous civilization in the southern part of the subcontinent, and it always had maritime interests in our region. And then there was the Indo-Aryan North that shared the continental visions of the Indo-European speakers of Central Asia. Through the Hellenic and the Persian peoples who reached northern India, those ancient links produced a world of multiple gods that was comparable to that of the later Greco and Roman civilizations. But unlike the peoples of the Mediterranean, those of the Indic civilizations did not find the monotheism of the Semitic peoples appealing. Indic civilization represented, was represented by people later described as Hindus who deferred, who offered a distinct road to rebirth rather than visions of paradise and heaven. They focused on developing original and esoteric insights about life that most people in our region found attractive and inspiring. But their emphasis on rigid caste divisions did not take root. That is, in fact, a clear example of how our region was selective in what they adopted, what they took over into their local cultures. Within India, there were many local states and cultures that were free to choose among the many paths that were available to them. Their deep-thinking teachers and priests debated fiercely among themselves about what was true. Their numerous states fought one another frequently. However, the civilization continued to offer inspiration to those in our region who accepted what it had to offer. Its deep and rich cultural roots spread across the subcontinent, and its spirit of ideational and aesthetic inclusiveness enabled the civilization to withstand external threats, first from the Islamic conquerors and later from the British Empire. It is not clear what it was in the Mon-Khmer cultures that found Indic civilization so attractive. What we know is that when the Chinese first visited the earlier states on the mainland some 2,000 years ago, they recorded the strong presence of Indic institutions and a flourishing trade with the Indian subcontinent. What was noteworthy was that the early Mon-Khmer rulers worshipped the gods of the Hindu pantheon, adopted Indic government principle, governance principles, and embraced a wide range of Indic aesthetic values. But their descendants and the Siamese successor states kept only the Buddhist realms of Indic civilization, something that I'll come back to later. The scholars who first studied the so-called Hinduized states, as they called them at the time, were fascinated to discover that the Nusantara peoples of the archipelago 
were no less influenced by Indic civilization about the same time. Here, the mix of deities, the governance methods, and the artistic artifacts and architectural monuments were influenced by different waves of, but influenced by, in different ways by the indigenous cultures of the archipelago. What was particularly striking was that when Indic contacts weakened, Buddhism did not survive in the archipelago. Among the Nusantara peoples, the Hindu faith was left mainly in eastern Java and Bali. And contrary to what happened in India and among our mainland states, the archipelagic ruling elites, the archipelago people, the Nusantara peoples, eventually gave up much of their Indic heritage and turned to monotheistic Islamic civilization instead. The maritime peoples of the archipelago had originated from different parts of the China mainland. The peoples who spoke the Austronesian languages arrived in the region from a different direction. It is widely agreed that they moved out of southern China by sea. Most of them island hopped from Taiwan to the Philippines and beyond. Among them, some turned west to the coast of central Vietnam. There, they followed the Khmers in accepting cultural influences from Indic civilization and established their own riverine states. And these became known as the Kingdom of Lin Yi or Nen Champa. Both kingdoms played a mediating role between the archipelagic cultures and those of the mainland. Large numbers of these speakers also crossed the South China Sea and stopped at the neck of the Malay Peninsula, south of the Khmer Empire. And there they created a, a frontier zone between the continental and the maritime that is still significant for the region today. The people of Nusantara used their island world in different ways and kept their maritime trading activities distinct from that of the earthbound mainland states. But both, but, both, <clears throat> but both sides continued to develop their cultures by sharing the best of the Hindu and Buddhist manifestations of Indic civilization. Neither the Khmers and their successors nor the archipelagic peoples produced visionaries of their own with independent worldviews that could have led to creating their own civilizations. Both sets of states were content to shape their own respective cultures by selecting what they wanted from the Indic civilization and discarding those they did not want. And during the formative centuries of their development, they seemed confident that what they picked from that civilization was sufficient to make them civilized and strong. What is also worthy of note is that we learned of their centuries of immersion in Indic political, religious, and aesthetic values through Chinese records. About the same time, the Chinese had discovered that the Buddhist realm of knowledge and insights within Indic civilization was wonderfully attractive and convincing. 
the expansion of the Nanhai trade in the South China Sea was largely based on the natural, on the natural products collected by the Hindu Buddhist peoples for their commercial needs. Large groups of Buddhist scholars from Sinic countries, Sinic centers in China, in Korea, and in Vietnam studied Indic civilization in the old capital of Srivijaya, the Malay capital of Srivijaya, then at Palembang. And they moved among the local monks of the Singhasari realms of Java and its Mataram successor states. Like their counterparts in Southeast Asia, the Chinese saw civilization as borderless and enriched their own cultures by choosing what to accept from another civilization. This takes me to our region's relations with early Sinic civilization. Unlike with the Indic and its outreach across the Bay of Bengal, the core of the Sinic civilization was in North China, far away from the maritime world of the Nusantara peoples. The Chinese themselves had first received their share of Indic ideas and institutions from missionaries who came from overland, from Central Asia and from Northern India. For them, the Chinese were won over by the subtleties of the Buddhist Dharma. Where relations with our region was concerned, it was not until large, num large numbers of Chinese had migrated to the southern coastal provinces that maritime commercial activities quickly began to develop. And after that, the Chinese reached out for the sources of the India, for the Indic worldview, both overland through our mainland states, as well as by sea through the ports of the archipelago. Both merchants and officials profited from that growing trade. But for centuries, it was the spiritual light of the Western heaven, the Shi Tian in India, that drew the Chinese to our region. From Fashian's records, his travel accounts of the early fifth century, to Yi Jing's two volumes about those monks traveling to India via Srivijaya in the seventh century. And there's enough testimony of the Indic magnet that stimulated Chinese maritime trade across the South China Sea. In comparison, the Indic-inspired Nusantara states left no major writings to record their ties with India, but only scattered inscriptions to show the extent of Indic influences on local literacy. In any case, monuments like Borobudur, Prambanan, and many others speak louder than words. Walking around those great sites of develop, uh, dev devo devotional architecture, who can doubt the depths that Indic spiritual and political penetration had reached? When Buddhism lost its importance in India, China needed another kind of transformation to stimulate its commercial interest, commercial relations with our region. This came with the decline of the Tang Empire and the second period of division in Chinese history. From the 10th to the 13th century, the imperial state 
sought new sources of revenue and encouraged the enterprising people in the southern provinces to be more active in maritime trade. And this meant that trade now received official support. We have more evidence of Chinese private trade pushing south to Luzon Island and the Sulu Sea, expanding commercial relations with Champa and the Khmer Empire, and extending their interests further to the ports of Java and Srivijaya. We also have, at the same time, more and more Islamic sources of this period that confirm a growing trade involving Chinese and the merchants from the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. All of those who traded with, China, with the Chinese learned to value their manufacturers like silk and ceramics and some of their trading methods and technological skills. But the Chinese, had little, the Chinese merchants had little capacity to reflect the political and cultural values of Sinic civilization. In any case, it was clear that those values had little appeal to the Nusantara peoples, who had, accustomed, who had been accustomed to an increasingly open multicultural environment. By that time, they were operating within the loose mandala system of state relations that they took from Indic civilization. And with that serving as a model, they had room to cultivate their own distinct local cultures. For the first thousand years of recorded history, our region was most responsive to Indic civilization and adopted many elements of that civilization to shape a large number of distinct cultures in the region. Through a process that some have called syncretism, each set of rulers and their elites seem to have gained cultural and political confidence by their success in shaping their own local identity. On the mainland, the Khmer and Mon, the Thai and the Burmese consolidated their Indic heritage through their respective versions of Buddhist authority, after that had been lost in India itself. And when, that, and when they later became nation states, that internalized authority provided strong foundations for developing modern national culture. Similarly, the Vietnamese, probably the first proto-nation, one might call it, one of the first proto-nations in our region, were developing a distinct national culture drawing primarily from Sinic civilization. As for the archipelago peoples, the Nosantara people, their openness to all three of their neighboring civilizations had enabled the local cultures on different islands, as well as on the Malay Peninsula, to retain their distinctive features. This remained so even after most of the communities were later converted to Islam. Only those farthest to the east in the Philippines were later drawn into the Christian Mediterranean orbit. But they too were inclined to maintain their own cultural features within that faith. What began to make a difference was the growing importance of maritime power from the 16th century onwards. 
This power was shared between Britain and France during the 18th and 19th centuries. By that time, Southeast Asia was experiencing the early capitalist qualities of modern civilization, something that produced what has been called a decisive turn towards the idea of universal enlightenment. So where was Singapore in all this? I imagine that there were always people on this peninsula island sweeping in and out and sharing the Indic civilizational experiences of the other Nusantara peoples around. Singapore historians, with the help of archaeologists, have taken its history back to the end of the 13th century, and you have seen artifacts that show the coming together of three civilizations. That was no accident. The century that is encapsulated in the Fort Canning Park today saw important changes to the civilizational mix in the region. The nomadic empires of Central Asia, Persia, and Afghanistan had invaded the heartlands of Sinic and Indic civilizations with somewhat different results. On the one hand, Turco-Mongol forces diminished Indic influence at sea and supported Islamic presence in the Indian Ocean. On the other, total Mongol conquest of China encouraged southern Chinese to advance their trading activities beyond the South China Sea to India and the Persian Gulf. The Tamasic story linked the remnants of Malay Srivijaya to an emerging Javanese Majapahit Empire, as well as the rule as the rising kingdom of Siam. All three born out of localized Hindu-Buddhist polities. Nothing before had prepared them for the naval expeditions under the Muslim Admiral Zheng He of Ming China that pushed beyond Singapore to support the establishment of Malacca. It has been suggested that the Malaccan ruler and that the Muslims, so it has been suggested that the Muslims who headed the expeditions might have encouraged the Malacca ruler to convert to Islam. But that probably was not, didn't matter that much because what was really mattered was that that moment of history, Islamic and Sinic interests converged. And that laid the foundations for the Malacca Empire to become the, the base for Islamic maritime expansions. We know little about the, rule of, the role of Singapore during the centuries of transformation that followed the arrival of Europeans. From time to time, the Nusantara peoples of the Straits and the archipelago tried to defend their interests from European expansion. And for that, they would have used the island's harbor and the rivers. Precisely what its place was among the contending elites from Malacca Johor the Minangkabau from Sumatra and the Bugis maritime traders of Sulawesi is unclear. That probably mattered less than the fact that the island was strategically situated when Anglo-Dutch rivalry led the two powers to separate their imperial interests once and for all in 1824. By its very location, 
it can be said that Singapore was complicit in effecting that change. Something important was about to take place. The port city was on the front line of national empires. The officials that were sent to run it believed that they were the standard bearers of modern civilization. And what they set out to do would have massive consequences on the ancient civilizations that have so far been sustaining the region. In my next lecture, I shall explore the conditions that began to pave the way for revolutionary change. Thank you. Thank you, Prof Wang. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step out to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Professor Kuo Kian Wun, Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Arts Singapore, to start the Q&A session. Thank you so much, uh, Prof Wang, for starting your series of lectures by placing your own biography within the longer-term historical context and indeed the wider geographical canvas. Thank you for also sharing your own personal links with Ujong Tana, the endpoint tip of uh, the peninsula, your own Marantau or wandering, which has also led to the questions you have put before us today. Um, and also for laying out the foundations and the scaffolding uh, for addressing these questions over the next three lectures. Uh, I would like to invite questions, uh, comments. This is a precious opportunity and we have made enough time for a in-depth discussion. Uh, I also have this iPad to look at questions coming in from uh, our online uh, source. Perhaps I will just uh, make a quick observation, Prof Wang, that I think it's, it's, for me it's really good that the whole question of the concept of civilization, which has often been met with suspicion uh, by certain scholars because of connotations about the superiority of any particular civilization over others, uh, including portraying others as being of a lesser state, as sometimes as barbarians or even as savages and so on. But by turning the concept of civilization to deeper spiritual, intellectual, philosophical resources that we can draw from today and that continue to resonate uh, with our own, uh, our own Marantau as we face the contemporary world. I think that shifts the discussion in a very positive direction. Uh, that would be my one comment, uh, Prof Wang. But could I open up the discussion, please? Yes, uh, Kishore, uh, Professor Mabumani. Thank you, Gangwu, for that fascinating lecture. You mentioned, both in your lecture and in the slides, 
that the different parts of Southeast Asia, the different islands, were able to retain their distinct cultures, right? And of course, for me, the most interesting island in Southeast Asia is Java. And the question in my mind is, why is it that the Javanese were able to create their own very sort of unique culture, which in a sense became the most successful culture within the Nusantara, within the Indonesian fabric? What is it that made them different and allowed them to dominate Indonesia in the way that they do today? What was special about them that made them different from the people in Sumatra, in Borneo, and elsewhere? You want to help with that? That's right. So, Prof Wang, uh, for, for our questioners, please uh, speak a little louder too, uh, for the Prof Wang's benefit. I think Prof Mabumani was asking about the specialness of Java, where we see that it's its, its centrality within the region and their special role in... Uh, Kishore, uh, would you like to add a little more to that? Yeah. Yeah, one mix. Yeah. Uh, that, that is a, a question that has been asked again and again. It has been a, the most puzzling question, one of the most puzzling questions about our region. Uh, I have uh, no simple answer to this one. I believe that the, the most important reason is that those people who settled in Java very early had developed agriculture. Uh, unlike elsewhere, in all the islands, we read about riverine states people never really went into the interior. Most of the people settled on the river by, close to the sea and concentrated their livelihood on using the sea, either as fishermen, traders, or smugglers, or pirates, or whatever. They, they essentially lived by the sea, with the exception of Java. I mean, there were lots of land in Sumatra, lots of land in Borneo, but the riverine people did not go find the interior. And the people in the interior didn't do much, like the Dayaks or Ibans and Dusuns in Borneo. Uh, and even in Sumatra, the inland people did not go into agriculture as much as, for example, the Javanese did. I recall one particular story as a young, when I was born in, as you know, I was born in Surabaya, in East Java. And one of the stories I was told was Java was different because if you poke a stick in the ground, it will grow. Because of the fertility of the land, the soil was volcanic. I mean, the fact that it was a, and, and today we just read about the, the earthquake in the, in the Sunda, in the Sunda part in West Java. And Java was a set of volcanic uh, mountains which grew up regularly over millennia and led behind such fertile soil that all you needed to do was just put something there and everything would grow. That was a story I grew up with. And I've heard this from other people, that things just grow so easily. So when the maritime peoples arrived in Java, unlike elsewhere, where it was red, the kind of rich laterite soil that we find in Malay Peninsula or Sumatra or Borneo, Agriculture was not exactly appealing. It was hard work. Whereas life in Java as a peasant was relatively easy. This is my story. I don't, I don't offer it as a historical explanation, but I suggest that the agrarian success in Java made it 
more responsive to the kind of agrarian society that created the Indic civilization in the first place. What they brought, for example, when they went to the mainland of Southeast Asia, Indic civilization was particularly successful. It was among agrarian people. Even in China, it was agrarian people who responded to Buddhism, and it was in, uh, in uh, mainland Southeast Asia, in all the riverine, big river states, whether it's Irrawaddy, Salween, Menam, Mekong, very fertile, and developed the agriculture very young, very early, and industrialization thrived in, in, in all of them. So there may be a connection between agrarian societies responding to the agrarian origins of Indic civilization much better. The governance principles, the ideas of those gods, for example, probably they, they had to reflect, as it were, a tremendous anxiety or desire to grow things, to grow things fast. And the, and the deities helped you keep the land fertile and keep the land rich. Whereas the, the, the sea, maritime people, like the Bugis or the Malay people generally, who turn to the sea. For example, Sri Vijaya is a very good example. We don't even have proper monuments of Sri Vijaya. The people just moved around from port to port. In fact, Sri Vijaya had different capitals right around the Straits of Malacca and in the Realinga archipelago. And they didn't, they didn't ever, never really turn to the land. They constantly changed their positions within the sea and did extremely well. So even in the end, when something like the Johor Empire began to revive itself, it was by the Bugis who came from thousands of miles away from Sulawesi. Again, people who used the sea but never really were attracted to life as peasants on the land. So I would simply say, as a possible hypothesis for further <laughs> discovery research, that the agrarian fertility of Java made the people who settled there found it so easy to become peasants that that had a different response and different uh, uh, way of absorbing and, and taking over and taking all the richness of uh, the Indic civilization so readily into Java. Thank you, Prof. This is a hypothesis that is worthy of a few more PhD theses. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, could you also identify yourself? Okay, my name is uh, Tan Sui Che. Um, I'm retired, uh, but previously associated with uh, NTUC Enterprise and, and now more active with the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Yeah. I'm a great admirer. Uh, I'm a great admirer, uh, Professor Wang, and thank you for such a wide scaffolding anchored in the last 1,000 years' history. Uh, I'm encouraged by the comment made by Professor Kwok Ken Woon about civilization. So I decided to ask uh, two themes which I hear emerging from your lecture. Uh, the first one was about enlightenment and modernity. Yeah? And the second word you used was pluralism, but that was more in the context of Singapore. Uh, I'm very curious about your views and that I'm going to write on Professor Quark's uh, comments. Yeah? Um, clearly, uh, enlightenment uh, in the 18th century, 17th century, uh, and its anchor on industrial revolution and the rise of science was compelling. But it doesn't necessarily extend 
to the world of uh, humanities, ethics, politics, and how to live. Yeah? Although one could argue about the claims uh, of democracy and individual freedom, there are alternative views about how to live. Yeah? So I'm curious uh, that certainly in the last 200 years, 100 years, there is a sense that enlightenment as anchored in science uh, was superior because it solves problems. But allied to that, there are many issues which is now evident that the rise of science without the rise of ethics and humanity and how to live is problematic, yeah? problematic on today's terms. Yeah? Which brings us to the second question, uh, which is about pluralism, not just of Singapore, but the pluralism of civilizations. Yeah? And, and it's hard to argue uh, one is superior to the other. So I'll be curious on your views, uh, how you uh, view these questions which are central to our times. Uh, on, on how to live with each other as civilizations, and, and your comments on the rise of science as incomplete. Uh, we need a more holistic view of what a civilization means when it talks about enlightenment. Thank you, Mr. Tan. Uh, Mr. Tan, do remember we have three more lectures. <laughs> <laughs> Prof. Wang, uh, the enlightenment, the rise of science, and is there really a lack or less uh, development in the Western Enlightenment in the area of humanities and ethics? And, and if so, uh, is there something that we need to address here? Well, I, I shall be talking about this uh, in, my, in my next lecture, uh, so I, I will say more then. But let me briefly say this, that the major change that uh, occurred was really after First of all, after the fall of Constantinople, something did fundamentally change and bring about a Renaissance Europe. And that, of course, had its impact on, on, on the, uh, the, the, the power of the church and the power of the states in Europe that led to the Reformation. So the Enlightenment is a particular product of a series of conflicts, conflicts within Europe, which were pretty, pretty intense and very bloody and extremely cruel and brutal. But in the, in, in the course of it all, they, as they sorted out their, their, their struggles, one thing became clear. There was an absolute rejection of the absolute authority of the church. And that was a major turning point between what they call the Reformation period, between the Catholic Church and the Protestant world. And from that, Plus the fact that the crusading wars of the Mediterranean against the Muslims in the Mediterranean finally ended when the Europeans reached out of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic and into the Indian Oceans. As I said, my, my next lecture would be about the global maritime. And it was a global maritime that created a, a different world. And one of the first things to say about that was, of course, the opening of the Americas created a whole range of all kinds of possibilities came out of that. The new wealth, fantastic wealth and richness from the gold, silver, and then the trade in Asia, which, they, which, which became the, the secret of their success. But out of it all, together with the discovery of new worlds, discovery of the new kinds of flora, fauna, the new 
kinds of living which, uh, which the Europeans had never encountered before in the Americas, as well as in Asia and elsewhere, stimulated tremendous excitement in Europe. And all this pulled together, war against authority of the church, and that led to war against the authority of the kings, of the monarchs. So you had the, those, those things followed one after the other. In a way, it was logical. Once you oppose the authority of some, some pope or, or Catholic church that was absolute, once you reject that, you, you open up tremendous opportunities to reject other claims to authority, including your claim to know the truth and the search for the truth, the kind of scientific thought that emerged from out of that. It's a, it's a longer story. I'll, I'll come to that later. Thank but you. you can see that that is a complete break, and that is the beginnings of modern, what we call modern civilization. But it was a very special set of circumstances that created that. And it had something to do with the breaking out of the Mediterranean into the, into the two oceans. Thank you, uh, Prof Wang. So Mr. Tan must stay tuned for the next three lectures. Uh, yes, sir, please, uh, go ahead. Uh, hi, my name is Jia Han. I'm from Ministry of Home Affairs. Uh, actually, uh, so uh, thank you, uh, Professor Wang, for the very enlightening lecture. And uh, I was thinking about the difference, uh, sorry, the definition of uh, culture and civilizations that you drew. I wonder how you saw the digital or cyberspace that is growing, like increasing in influence nowadays. Do you see this space as more of a culture or more of a civilization, or how would you place the digital space in? in in your Well, that's, that's really taking me way out of space. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have an answer to you. That is really something that, into the future, but modern, modern civilization has one, one tremendous difference from, from, the, the, from the past is that modern civilization believe in the idea of progress. I shall be talking about that, but that idea itself is actually quite extraordinary. No other civilization had, had, had discovered the word. In fact, all other civilizations have always had a golden age in the past from which we have, in fact, deteriorated. And we look to the golden age to, to give us guidance as to how to behave because the past is always better than us. We have to be as good as in the past. But the revolution came from this idea of progress. You actually believe that the future is going to be better than the, than the past. Never happened. I mean, even, if in, even in the great religions which talked about the future, there was always a day of salvation, which the future is somewhere else, not on this earth. It's, it's the end of the earth in a way. So the idea that you can material progress on this earth is unending, it can go on and on and on. It's probably the answer to your thing. It will go on. And uh, whether, whether, where it's going to lead us to, I have no idea. <laughs> thank you. Yes, please. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Professor Wang, for an exciting and uh, you know, uh, inspiring lecture. My name is Satya. I work for a firm called KPMG. Uh, yeah. So um, it's interesting about progress. I hope uh, the, the better age on climate is definitely uh, something we may want to go back to. 
uh, in the future, at least on climate. Uh, but my question, Prof, is uh, really on uh, the question of language. Uh, you, you, you laid out very beautifully how uh, different civilizations have uh, uh, you know, impacted Southeast Asia at the cultural level. Uh, can, can I understand from you uh, your perspective on how language has influenced uh, Southeast Asia through uh, those ideas? Language. Well, I, as as a as a historian, uh, we actually only begin when they, there was language, when there was literacy. Uh, we talk about records. Uh, only after you had records do we have history. So anything that was not written, we we can only speculate and guess, and we depend on archaeologists to do the work for us. But the question of language is indeed very important. But the language, essentially, is that rooted in cultures. Cultures and language are inseparable. And as I define, as I describe what I mean by cultures, everybody has culture. Even the most primitive tribe, you can say, has culture. And anthropologists would argue, even the most primitive tribe has culture. It may not have civilization, but it has culture. Everybody has it, because what it means is that, as a group, you have something distinctive. And what is distinctive is whatever you share together as a group. And what you share together to start with is at least a spoken language. So it's a language, a speech, which everybody had and it's, it's, as a humans, and you gather together. And what you share in common in the language provides you with the basis for culture. Then when you have literacy, you advance that to another stage when you can actually have memory recorded for, for future reference and for, to help you become better, to learn about the past to, so you don't make the same mistakes. Once you've written it down, all your inspired the things, you can pa pass it down, you can transmit it generation after generation. So literacy advances the, the borders of your language and you can have a larger group. You don't have to know each other you don't have to exactly speak the same dialect. You can write it down and you can read it and that sort of thing. So literacy adds another dimension. But all these are still essentially part of cultures. Every culture depends on some means of communication and language is the basis of it. Literacy to me is of course fundamental because, and you can say that if without literacy, there's no question of even acquiring civilization, very, diff very difficult. How you communicate something like civilizations, as far as, far as I know, all the, all the successful civilizations that are communicated have at some point or other been dependent on, on, on literacy. I mean, even in Indic civilization, in Southeast Asia, we don't have many proper records of what happened in, when Indic civilization came here. We have it in monuments, aesthetic, artistic, music, and dance, which have survived. Those have survived. And the literacy part comes in inscriptions here and there. The people here did not have the tradition of writing it down as historical records. But they did, the literacy gave them something that we know the names of all the rulers, for example, of uh, Angkor or in uh, Mataram or, or Srivijaya, we name some of the rulers because somewhere along the line there was some inscription which had it. And all those inscriptions were in a, a script which came from India. No script, as far as we can tell, 
of you can understand, was invented in Southeast Asia. The scripts all came from India. The, the, the speech may not have survived, but the scripts have survived as the archaeologists have discovered them. And as the scripts survive, then you can relate, the, relate you can, the connection can be made to reading the scripts. For example, we know some, the, how old the Malay language was, uh, not, by, not through what we read today in Rumi or in uh, Jawi, but in actually in Sanskrit, Sanskritic scripts, in Indic scripts, surviving in some of the uh, uh, inscriptions in, in, in Sumatra. So literacy then is essential to at least the transmission of civilizations. Cultures don't need that. I mentioned earlier, non-literate cultures can be just as rich to artistic and other aesthetic and, and, and things you create with your hands, and what you do with your, your, your senses in terms of music and dance and so on. There are many other ways of communicating culture. But civilization, I think, ultimately depends on your ability to transmit a, a, a sense of the true meaning of life, the idea of truth, what is the point of, uh, what, are, what are we here for, how do we become better people, how to improve ourselves and so on. These de 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 at least required some degree of literacy. And in the end, the actual transmission does depend on literacy. And all the civilizations that have survived to this day are highly literate civilizations. And I think that's not an accident. But la language as a national language and so on, that is a different thing. And as I said, and I'll come back to that later on about why I, this difference, difference between culture and civilization is so important even for Singapore. You want to have a national culture, but the national culture could be based on many layers of civilization. And that I'll come back to later. I have a couple of questions from online, but I think since you're standing up, please, and I'll see whether it's related to the questions here too, please. Okay, my name is Wong Sun Fen. I'm a staff of NUS, associated with College of Alice and Peter Tan and Richview Residential College. Okay, I have uh, two questions, but I'll try to keep it short. But my main question is actually, you mentioned in one of your slides that in the early beginnings, uh, Southeast Asia was a region with no identity, right? Uh, I think you said, uh, yeah, a, re a region with no identity. So my question is, after f more than five decades or six, uh, what do you see as the identity of Southeast Asia? That's my question. The second part to this question is, with the introduction of inclusion of Timor-Leste, uh, will this identity change and how will it affect this identity of Southeast Asia? Thank you very much, Ralph Kwong. Are we coming back to modern ASEAN? Well, let, let, me, let me see. Since I am going to talk about later on about the, the, the nature of, of, of Southeast Asia today, since it was invented, uh, uh, to begin with, uh, you, you would not have ASEAN if they didn't name, it wasn't a place called Southeast Asia. And as I said, the name was only invented in 1944, uh, in 1944, 44, in the, in the office of some British strategic thinkers in, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the middle of the war. So that's a very recent thing. This region didn't even have a name, and this is what I find so absolutely fascinating about it. It didn't even have a name, and yet when you look at it, they had so much in common, and they had a deep base, a base which I, which I identify as Indic in origin, tremendous variety of Indic in origin, 
including Buddhism, of course, and, and, and so on. And then layer after layer of Islamic, of Chinese in a different way, Sinic civilization, and ultimately of this modern civilization, which started as European Christian, Crusaders civilization, but eventually developing into modern civilization. So there, all these have happened. So this region was always there doing things differently from other places and located, as I mentioned, started to mention, as a peninsula and an archipelago that, that didn't have a name, didn't have a common name, but they had common experiences. And while they had all those common experiences, no bother, nobody bothered to give it a name. This is quite interesting. They, they didn't even have a name for themselves. I mean, uh, we are, these are names which we are ha having to, uh, in a way, invent to, 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 to identify them. And the scholarly research of the last half century has been extraordinary in trying to, in, to try and re reconstruct the history of Southeast Asia, which didn't have a history before. We never saw it like that. And now we see it like that. And that itself is of great interest. And I shall come back to that. Thank you for that point. Um, I, I just have, perhaps just to acknowledge that we have questions online. Uh, I think one question one, we could save for a subsequent lecture where um, the, uh, one of our listeners is asking your key concerns about modern-day civilizations, especially in the 21st century and with the rise of what has been called radical worldviews. Should we save that for another lecture? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like... I, I, could, I could start, but I'm also tempted to say, leave it to my later lecture. Okay. I could say something, yeah. because I think this is actually part of, the, part of the idea of progress that I mentioned earlier on. Once you have the idea of progress, and progress becomes a marker for what is modern, that modern has to be progressive, improving ourselves all the time, advancing knowledge, getting a better sense of what is true and what is not true, to become more and more accurate about what we do, to be able to handle the minuscule, smallest things to the largest millions of billions of miles away in the, in, the, in the atmosphere, in the universe. To be able to do all that is a fantastic challenge. And uh, this can go on and on and on, as it were. And once you, once you take in this idea of progress, what we are facing today, and what is, I think, probably beyond my capacity to understand at all, is the way it is gathering speed. I mean, in my lifetime, what I knew when I was young and what I learned later on took me decades to fathom, to work out in the, in the te technology that was available when I was young. I was always uh, very, in fact, almost boastful of the fact that I didn't know how to use a telephone until I was 19 years old because I had no telephone in my home. Nobody that I knew had a telephone. I never used a telephone. But now I can look at the, the, world, world, the world communicates. How do we compare that? And how do you measure the rate of speed the speed of change compared to, say, the speed of change in the thousand years before that and the thousand years before that. That rate of speed that changes, and now it's shrunk to a point of every second you can discover something new. Something new is happening around the world, and it can be communicated to you. This is un un unimaginable 
in, in, my, in, my, in, my, in my lifetime. And yet, this is going to go on. Will it come to a stop ever? How, how, do, how do you reach the point to come to an end when this kind of progress of science and technology that we have now the capacity to do, I just can't imagine. So I, I honestly have no idea what it's going to be like. Mm. But, so, but I, what I do know, what I do know is that once the idea that we can progress and that being creative, creative destruction is well, being creative, being innovative, constantly seeking to extend the frontiers of knowledge and so on at the speed that we're going, that it's almost anything is possible. Mm -hmm. given, that, given that fact that this is happening. Thank you. And that's probably a, a partial answer to the earlier question about digital transformation. Yeah. Um, yes, please, sir. Oh. Manoj Sharma, I run a technology company, but primarily I think because of these excellent IPS lectures over the years, I've developed a fascinating um, interest in history. Prof, the last time you were here, you made some comments about empire. Today, of course, you've spoken and drawn our minds towards civilization and culture. Something that uh, Prof Kishore mentioned earlier actually has been in my mind for quite some time, and if you could lend some insights to it, I'll be very delighted. Prof Kishore brought up the idea of Java, and it was always in my mind, I, we know that Raffles and Farqa were interested in Bangka, Karimun, and Singapore as potential places to have a settlement. With all the wealth from Java, the Molaccas Islands, uh, the possibilities of Bangka, what was it about the J Dutch civilization and culture post the 1824 treaty that did not allow them to succeed maybe in the way some of their competition did? I, I hate to say this, but there are, there are other important words that I have not yet gone into. And the word empire is one of them. But even more important, and I shall, I shall come to that in, 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 in very carefully, and that is the word nation. Uh, up to now, I'm talking about cultures and civilizations because they are all there, always there. But empires came later and changed. There are many kinds of empires. And as I also will argue, there are many kinds of nations. But let me say that. To, to take the point of empires, for, and I will deal only with this one tonight, today. And that is that empires, is whenever one state becomes big enough and conquer, takes, takes other people's states, it was already an empire straight away. It can be a very small empire, also a very large empire. They range all the way from an empire, which is no more than one state conquering the next state, all the way to the empires that are global. Like, like the British Empire was the first global one that incorporated the sea, where the Mongol Empire was one that nearly incorporated all the land that was available in Eurasia. So the, the, the changing way you can control a power is grown. In a way, like, like knowledge, like progress, you have capacity to take in more territory, and all that becomes bigger. But what did make a change is that all those empires, in one way or the other, were dynastic empires. They're always to do with one king and how you, the succession is always through monarchies or emperors and their children in the family. It's a dynasty. And you have to, you have changing dynasties change from time to time. One dynasty falls, another takes over. But dynastic empires. 
But the next stage, and the stage that I think that's the beginning of what I call modern civilization, is when national empires develop. So it comes back to the word nation. And that is a brand new word. I mean, the nation, the word itself is not new, but the way it is defined as a nation state, a state which is of the citizenry, of the people of that state. All of them are masters of that, in that state. There's no king. The king doesn't matter. He may be a constitutional monarch, but that's all. But then the empire like France or the United States in the 18th century, when they became independent, that is a completely new phenomenon. And today, this has become universal. Everybody has nations. Why? Because we've got the subjects of national empires, and we wanted to get rid of them. We actually became nations. They, because that is what we, we thought the way to do was to anti-colonial means you have your own nation and not be a subject of a, a national empire. We want to be a nation in our own right. So we took over the word nation. And I, I'm already giving you a hint of what I'm going to say about it because the problems of making ourselves nations are really immense and they vary from one country to another but they are tremendously difficult and much more complex than anyone realized. All of us who started our lives as anti-colonials thought we were going to be great in building nations. We thought that was a job which all of us had to do, and it was something we could all do. If they can do it, why can't we? You know? But actually, it was so new to the whole of Asia, and certainly to our region, it was so new, it turned out to be an extremely difficult job. And that comes to the fact that the nature of empires changed, and their empires became nations and created a hell of a lot of headaches for all of us. Great answer. Thank you. We, we have to be winding down because I see you know, on the screen that my countdown timer says zero, 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 zero. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Prof. Prof Wang, by the way, uh, you might just have set yourself up for another lecture series on empires and nations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, in fairness to those, uh, there, there, there are two questions which I could collapse together. And it's got to do with Prof Wang, your idea of Southeast Asia and of course Singapore at the heart of Southeast Asia being the confluence of civilizations. You also spoke about mandalas. There's a question asking about what are the implications of this confluence, especially from your vantage point, it says here, of your generation with these intertwining gener civilizations and inter intersecting histories. And you yourself, of course, were part of a generation that sought to create uh, a national culture when Malaya was on the cups of independence. I note in your lecture, you also spoke about some kind of loss of political innocence on, on your part. Uh, and of course, this also translated on into your, your later work. Could you just say something general and leave us some thoughts so that we will come, we will come and attend the next three lectures? <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, that's a big pile of questions out there. Yeah. But let me, let me try and use one, one particular point that I think is it's, it's very important to me and I believe it is central to many of our problems today. And that is that my understanding of civilizations as being borderless. How do I explain that? 
It's borderless because if the quality of the ideas, the brilliance of the discovery met the methodologies to discover new truths, the inspiration of some spiritual or intellectual or even physical change that uh, everybody aspires to and is impressed by, all that is actually borderless. Anybody can learn that. You, you, you see it. It's like the diffusion of knowledge. Once you have the knowledge, you don't, it does, it's not that hard for you pick, to pick it up because it's border. Nobody stops you. What we're up against are when you have th things like empires and nations, and the, particularly when you have nations, and it comes back to it. Because once you have borders, when you say this is a border, you cannot cross, this is sovereign, you cannot touch, you must respect, and so on and so forth. Then you, you create a whole system, which is absolutely necessary, of course, once you have these nations, a whole system of laws, regulations, prohibitions, and what is possible, what is not, and so on. And then how to enforce it, how to be willing to use violence to stop people from breaking the laws, breaking the rules. All these things add up, and then everything is bordered. And that restricts this question of civilization being borderless. The, the, that's the one thing that made as human beings, as it were, have really profited from modern civilization has been the fact it has been borderless like, ancient, like the ancient civilizations. Modern civilization was borderless. It was run, taken out by national empires when they conquered the world. They took it out to everybody. But on the whole, it was borderless in the sense that you can all learn from them. I mean, the Europeans who came out here were very happy to teach us if you want to be like them, if you can, in their minds, maybe they thought you may not be able to, but if you can, you're welcome to it. And they were quite happy to do that because they were confident, they were sure, they were not afraid. They in fact, very happy that you should learn. You, you show respect to them. You actually admire them, and therefore you want to learn from them. They're very happy. But the ones that begin fearful that you can learn it and maybe even better, be better than them, you get fearful, you get frightened, and then the story becomes different. You can't afford to be borderless. You have to say, no, no, you can't learn that. You can only learn this, but you can't learn that. And I can tell you what to learn and what you can't learn. Once you start talking like that and thinking like that, you are actually moving away from civilization, to my mind. That is no longer civilization. That is kind of national talk, imperial imperial, nationalistic talk when you talk like that. Once you remove, once you move away, once you are frightened of being borderless, then you are no longer talking about civilization. You're talking about cultures, national cultures fighting each other and so on. So I mean, I, so I use this word borderless. I, I will be talking about that too. But I think I use that to capture yeah. something that I think covers all the yeah. related problems that we face today. Thank, thank you, Prof Wang. I'm, I'm so glad I allowed for a little more time, but we've been indulging all of you. This seems to me a very good uh, place to end. And with the concept of civilization and it, the idea of borderless, borderlessness being uh, on, and transcending borders, being in some ways liberating both intellectually as well as uh, socially, 
Uh, and I, I think one takeaway uh, for me and I think for us is that we live on an island, but we don't have to think like an island. We can think in relation to the peninsula, to the archipelago, and to the wider world. And uh, Prof. Wanga, you said in, at the end of your lecture that your next lecture will explore the conditions that pave the way for revolutionary change. So you left us with a cliffhanger, and we are all awaiting your next lecture with great anticipation. Thank you, Prof. Wang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Kwok and Prof. Wang for the excellent question and answer session. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event, and please click our links on the Facebook feed or scan the QR code up there to submit your feedback. Prof. Wang's second lecture titled Opening to the Global Maritime will take place next week on 1st December. Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead. <laughs>